The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we've been going through this series that has been, uh, it's called See What God Has Done, really looking at the main storyline of the Bible, the big picture of the Bible. If we were to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? Um, we want to spend seven weeks looking at these big concepts of doctrine, theology, and how we should interact with God's Word. So here's a question I want to ask you as we get started off here. When did you figure out that life doesn't work? Were you six? Were you 10, 12? I mean, today, are you, are you figuring out for the first time, like, he's right. Things don't work the way that I thought they would. And we, get, we can understand this. Our, our jobs, our relationships, our friendships, uh, the, the gaining and, and losing of friends, uh, our, our bodies, we, we find out at a certain point that, wait a minute, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Hair should not be there or should be here or whatever. You find it in your ear and you're saying, okay, things are different. <laughs> or even today might not even happen the way that you had planned. It may, it may uh, end up being a great day, but maybe tomorrow will be a day that you say, I didn't plan on it going this way. So we all know from our experiences that we live in a world that is wounded, that is broken, that is hurting. We participate in a hurting world as hurting people. And this series is meant to teach us to take a journey on the entire Bible and see what God has done. And what we see in the Bible is this. It is the story of God fixing broken people living in a broken world. I remember this. <coughs> excuse me. Give me a minute. I'm getting all clemmed. No. 20 years ago, a movie came out called The Legends of the Fall. 20 years ago. <laughs> and uh, see, things aren't as they should be. But the um, story of, of, a, of a man... Uh, in, in early 1900s uh, Montana, beautiful landscape where they lived uh, <clears throat> in the middle of nowhere, enjoying uh, life on the land. Three grown boys, three grown sons that this man had, living on remote wilderness. The youngest son brings home a woman, beautiful, classy, charming. Uh, you see the, the movie starts as, just as, a, as a story of, of joy and celebration. I mean, the, some of the scenes that I remember of them playing out uh, on the, the natural grass uh, tennis court that they have made, and laughing and falling and, and, and giggling and riding horseback and, and laughing around the dinner table and going to bed, counting their blessings and being grateful for all that they have. And you're thinking, this is a great movie. I want that life. I want to live in that context. And then soon, very soon after the beginning, disaster hits and the movie never turns back. It never returns to a place of feeling what you once felt at the beginning. Of like, wow, there's joy, there's love, there's comfort. And the beautiful life and scenery of this Montana wilderness of the film is the backdrop for tragedy. It's painful. You're actually waiting for the movie to have some sense of relief, and it never comes. And to say the least, things don't go the way that they had planned. And this is something to some degree that you and I can relate to. We understand things don't go the way that we plan. Our script in life, the way that we wanted things to happen when we were younger, they change. It doesn't happen that way. 
And Romans 5 that was read this morning, it recounts the effects of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. That Adam and Eve were created with innocence and a will, an ability to choose. They've been given this perfect and beautiful backdrop for life. They've been given this garden to enjoy without sin, free of sin, complete paradise. And God graciously gives Adam and Eve, giving them freedom to do anything that they want. With the exception of not eating of a single tree in the center of the garden. And so when they ate of it, they directly contradicted God's commands. They weren't forced to do it. No one made them do it. They did it out of their own volition, their own will. They choose to disobey God. And therefore something tragically happened. Chaos was thrown in. Adam's nature changed. Adam became a a sinful person. His very nature became sinful. Where it was innocent, it is now changed. Sin became something that Adam and Eve now naturally did. It was a natural part of their existence where it had never been before. They both had once enjoyed this fellowship and friendship with God. They had the freedom to disobey or the freedom to obey God. And because of their sin, now their nature has changed and that freedom has been lost. They have the freedom only to have a sinful nature and to disobey God. The Bible tells us that because of Adam, this is something that that we naturally do as well. That we have this disposition, this natural tendency, that we do not have the freedom in our own nature to obey or disobey, but only the freedom to disobey God. It spreads like a hereditary gene. What Adam did and what he became, it spreads like a hereditary gene. And the Bible says that we are all born into this circumstance that Adam finds himself in after the fall. How big of a deal was the fall? How big of a deal were the circumstances that Adam and Eve found themselves in? Well, it it immediately transformed their relationship with God. An instant transformation and a loss of freedom and friendship and relationship with God. The fall made Adam guilty, a person that was now guilty, not only affected, not only wounded, not only someone who just had like a really crummy day, but guilty of cosmic treason. He lost favor with God, no longer a friend, but the Bible calls him an enemy. Last month, we had to renew our our registration and title on our car, so we came up for our yearly renewal. And found myself in a circumstance that many of you, probably most of you, have found yourself in. And that is going to get emissions testing, right? You know what that's like. So you're waiting in line. Go over here on the one on Prince and and the frontage road. You're waiting in line, and you can't help but just, you're reading all the signs on the building. You know what I'm talking about? All the yellow signs that are on the building. And there's one of the signs that I read every time, and I just focus on that. It causes a lot of anxiety and, and kind of nervousness in me. And it says something like this. If you do not pass emissions... Pull around and park, and someone will come out and talk to you. Something like that. And I, I don't know why that, that sign, every time I read it, I say, that's, that's going to be me. Like, I'm, I'm gonna, you're going to go, you're going to park, and you're going to turn the ignition off, you're going to sit there, and you're going to wait for, like, Dad to come out and give you a talking to, right? Like, you got in trouble. It's, it's a pass-fail. It's like you either pass 
and they say, congratulations, you're free to go, or you fail, and you are not allowed to drive anymore. You're not allowed to drive if you don't meet the regulations of this emissions test. And I'm going to say something, maybe will come off really mean, but it's, it's absolutely true, is that because of Adam's sin, God's disposition to Adam was now as a person who no longer met the legal regulations. He had violated the law and was liable to punishment instantly because of the one thing he did wrong. And here's why this matters to us. Because like a receding hairline or, or, or blue eyes, Adam passes this nature down to us. And we, we do not meet, in our sinful nature, we do not meet the legal requirements, the legal regulations for a friendship with God. The, the fall is tragedy. It is painful. Theologians call this original sin. It's this condition that we find ourselves in, born into. It's an inherited nature. And it is the cause for the reason why we do everything that is sinful. It is the the cause for all future sins. The language in the Bible, as we read, says that death reigned. It reigned. To reign is to have complete control with no way escaping the influence of sin. This language is, is used as, one of a, as a king who has complete sovereignty and control over his kingdom. The Bible says this is what our sin nature does in our lives. It guides us, it controls us, it compels us down a course that is rebellious against God. This is what the fall does. So sin is, it is in a sense a, a shortcoming, a, a lapse, a mistake, but it goes way beyond that. The Bible explains it also as a, a missing a mark, as in like target practice. Or in a, another place it calls sin as a, as a trespass or a transgression, like a crossing of a, a legal boundary line on a property line crossing that line and, and trespassing. And it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans, just a couple chapters later, he says, I know that nothing good dwells with, within me. Now, does this mean that Paul is saying, I have never done a, a good thing in my life? You know, he's not saying that. He's not saying that he's never done a good thing. He's recognizing, though, that he has this natural ability, this propensity within him to sin, and it's affected every area of his life. You and I may not be as bad as we could be, but there is not a single area of our life because of the fall that has unaffected our life. There's not a single area that's been unaffected by the fall. Essentially, what the fall did was put us in a place where our hearts are disposed to run from God and to find our own salvation. And when this happens, everything in our life and everything that we touch with our, our emotions, our desires, our intentions. Everything is not as it should be. And so then we say things don't seem to work the way that they're supposed to. Physically, we hurt, we get sick, we age, and eventually we die. Intellectually, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually, everything is affected because of the fall. There is not a single area or dynamic or, or any nook or cranny of our existence that hasn't been damaged, broken by the fall. Some pastors might give you now a, a point where we go through like a three-point application or kind of implications of this. But I want to very clear, 
very quickly show you how the fall affects us uh, in, in 15 ways. Okay? So this is my 15-point 15, my 15 sermon. So if you thought the sermon was starting out like really depressing, it, it's going to continue. Well, so, uh, but there really are 15 points. There's three slides with five on each. And so I, I really, I'm going to go through quickly, but I think it's good for us to look at. So what, where does the fall reach in our lives? Where does it reach in our own hearts? Where does it reach in our relationships? Because the fall and sin is not just, oh man, I had a crummy day, I made a mistake. It is, it is bred into our existence and affecting everything. And like walking through a swamp, how we take a stick and try to figure out how deep it goes so that when we step, we won't drown. It is good for us to realize how deep does this go so that we can look at it, address it, and seek out a solution. Well, the fall causes physical death. Adam was the, the first person to die natural, a natural death. And right after the fall, when they had children, the image of God in them was not lost. God's, God's mercy was still on them. He still allowed them to live. But then almost immediately, there was murder that came on. And the, one son killing another. And then the first person to die to age and then die was Adam. I mean, what, was that, what would that have been like when everybody waiting around, seeing what was going to happen, and, and him being on the, on the planet for 900 years or 900 some years and then just dying? Physical death was a, a, is a cause of the fall. Alienation from God. They were, they were cast out from the presence of God. They were, they were banished from paradise, from the garden, and from, from the presence and friendship of God. They were enslaved to sin, that we become addicted to to bad habits and sinful tendencies. We, we become enslaved to destructive things. When you commit a sin and you commit a habitual sin, you keep doing it, you say, I hate that I do this, I want to stop doing this, but you can't help yourself. You keep finding yourself in a position of, of repeating the same sin over and over again. Whether it's anger or lust or insecurity or frustration, whatever it is, this is a result of the fall. Self-centeredness. We call attention to our good qualities and accomplishments and we minimize our weaknesses. Selfishness is a result of the fall. Hiding our true self, afraid of showing people who we are because if they find out who we are, they will despise us. That is a result of the fall. Comparison with others. We often compare ourselves with others and either feel good when someone fails or we feel jealous when someone succeeds. Have you ever felt that way? This is sin, and it's a result of the fall. The reason we feel this way is because our sinful nature disposes us to feel this way. Number six is people-pleasing. We become afraid of what people might think about us, so we do all that we can to protect the opinion that they have of us. We lack empathy. We have a hard time putting ourselves in other people's shoes, understanding how they're hurting, understanding their pain, because we're focused on ourselves so much. Self-deceit. We don't, we don't see our sin as bad as the sin of others. This is when we, the Bible verse that says that we, we see the speck in another person's eye but fail to see the log in our own eye. Our ability to see things as real as they are has been damaged because of the fall. Restlessness. We're, we're never satisfied with what we have we continually pursue more and more. And whether it's more rest, more money, more friendship, we lack contentment. We're on this vicious cycle of pursuing things that fail to give us 
real lasting joy. We go from one pleasure to another trying to find peace and we find it hard to relax. Insecurity. We crave approval from others and are always wondering, what do people think of me? What is their opinion of me? And then we look in and we, we start to feel shame. We start to feel fear if they find out. We become very insecure people. Number 11 is we take criticism and failure badly. We react with anger or we deflect. When, when something is exposed in us, we, we put up a wall. We pull out our guns. We, we fight against it. We control. We try to control our lives. The lack of feeling in control of our lives brings us great anxiety and fear. We become inflexible. We fear change. You feel that way because of the fall. It is not how you're supposed to feel. We avoid responsibility for fear of failure. We hide in the shadows and let somebody else go forward and and do what is right. We avoid deep relationships because what if that person, we, we open ourselves up to that person, that person rejects us and hurts us down the road. And lastly, we lack love. We lack a love for God and a love for others. Now, this is just my list. I mean, what is your list? What is on your list? The, the effects of the fall and sin is not just, oh, I didn't do what God said, therefore I've got 24 hours to, to kind of be in timeout, and then I could get back in with God. The fall has, has, has entered into every area of our life and affected us in a huge way. What is on your list? Where is their pain? Where is their insecurity? Where is their fear? Where is their confusion and doubt? Where is there a a resisting of God's truth and a pursuing of your own salvation? Wherever you see those things, whatever you list, come up with 15, come up with 30. Whatever those things are, this is not the way it should be. We live in a broken world as broken people. And it's helpful to do this. I'm not trying to beat you down and make you feel depressed. It's helpful to do this because sin is not just mistakes. It is a serious matter with far-reaching effects. It affects how we view ourselves. It affects how we view others. It affects our relationship with God. And when the Bible says that death reigns, this is exactly what is, he's aiming to communicate to us. That nothing in our lives is untouched. And it requires a cure that is just as far-reaching. Because if, these, if, the, if sin were merely a, a personality trait, then being a better person would be the solution. Changing our habits, turning over a new leaf, being more good than we are bad. And, and, and many of us, as we look at our lives and see this transformation, some of us might say, Yeah, I'm a Christian because I used to do bad things, but now I don't do those bad things anymore. But the the tragedy is so far, so much more deep than that. And the cure and the joy is so much more deep than that. Romans chapter 5 wants us to see our lives through the legacy of two different men, Adam and Jesus. The legacy that Adam has has lived and provided for us. That we learn that from Adam we inherit guilt. We do not meet the legal regulations that God has required of us. We have failed. And therefore, we have 
the consequences of all those 15 things, loss of relationship with God, physical death, spiritual death, personal insecurity, relational brokenness, emotional failures, internal stress. We relate to the world and God and people around us in just a broken way. Thanks, Grandpa Adam. But really, that nature is really the cause for why we do the same thing that Adam did. Rebel against God. Disobey God. Seek our own salvation. And if this seems unfair, which I imagine that some of you might be thinking that way, this seems unfair that because of the sin of one man, this is, this is my heritage, this is what I get, this is what I get, I'm, I'm, I'm lost with God. That doesn't seem fair. But if that seems unfair, here is another unfair statement that the Bible makes. That God designed the world in such a way that since our individual guilt would be inherited by another, our individual failings can be redeemed through the work of another. Our disobedience could be made right through the obedience of another. Our sin can be removed through the sinlessness of another. The list of people that fit that kind of criteria, that list is actually quite short. It has one man on that list. And Genesis 3 talks about him. I'm not going to keep you in suspense. That person's Jesus. But let's, let's, enter, let's enter into the Bible. Let's enter into this drama of God's word as we look at the, the grand story of all of Scripture. Because it is here of this unfolding of this story, answering that question, who is that one sinless person that we can inherit righteousness from? We have inherited guilt from one. Who is the one that we can receive forgiveness from? Go to chapter 3. Because this unfolds this this drama of the fall. I'm going to read 1 through 7, then we'll skip some and and we'll pick up in verse 14. But go to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Go to verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, if the question that we've been asking is, when did you realize that life didn't work? The second question is, is this. How will God heal it? How will God heal it? And God will heal the world and us through a war, through a conflict of cosmic scale. 
Do you realize that the first mention of Jesus is not in the New Testament in the Gospel of John? The first mention of Jesus is right here in Genesis chapter 3. There's a, a phrase that theologians use called proto-euangelion. Now, I want everybody in here to use that word in a sentence this week, okay? Proto-euangelion, it means the first gospel. The moment that the, word, the world is broken, God comes in to heal it. The moment that sin and rebellion and tragedy hits, God rushes in with a promise. And he rushes in with a plan to heal it. When we sin, God does not shake his head in disappointment, but he runs to our sin. When we suffer, he runs to our suffering. When we are weak, he does not despise our weakness, but intends to love us out of our weakness. And right when Adam and Eve fall and rebel from God and disobey him, he rushes in with a promise of victory. He says, from the seed of Satan, from all of deception and sin, you'll be at, at enmity with the seed of woman. But the seed of woman will raise up and defeat Satan and sin and death. From the very first sin ever committed, God has been pursuing sinners. God says, I will create war between your offspring and yours. And the offspring of the woman will have victory once and for all for over death and sin. And we spend the rest of the Bible saying, who is that? Who is that seed? Who is that one? And God's people would ask this question. And they continue to ask it. And, and men are raised up and they say, is this the one? Is this the one? And for a moment they think it is. And then that person would die and relief wouldn't come. And then eventually when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist, his cousin, is talking about forgiveness of sins and repentance of sins. And people come up to John the Baptist and say, are you the one that we should be waiting for? And he says, no. But then he sees Jesus walking and he says, but behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one you've been waiting for. And go to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll have it here on the board so that you don't have to flip to it. He says here in chapter 2, talking about Jesus, therefore, so that, since therefore the children stare, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We see in Genesis chapter 3, the first gospel, the first mention of how God is going to make it right how he is going to heal a broken world, how he is going to heal broken sinners. And then we see in Jesus the fulfillment of all that we've been waiting for. Immediately after judgment, we find out about Jesus. And two writings in Genesis and Hebrews, 1,500 years separate these two words. One is a promise and the other is a fulfillment. We see this 
in Jesus. And Jesus is called the second Adam. That all who are found in Adam, all men and women, receive guilt and separation from God. But all who are found in Christ find righteousness and abounding grace. Oswald Chambers says this from his daily devotional on October October 6th. If all Jesus Christ can do is tell me that I must be holy, his teaching only causes me despair. See, the Bible does tell us that we are sick. We've talked about this. We've talked about that we are broken. The Bible says we're sick. We cannot pursue God. We cannot obey God. Our will is bound. We are only free to rebel and disobey. But if that's all that we see, then that's like telling somebody that your house is on fire, but I'm not going to tell you where to find water. But Jesus is not just saying, you've got to get right, you've got to start living right, there's sin in your life, you're broken, you're wicked, you need to get your life right. He's not just saying those. He's saying, you're dead, but I will put my life in you so that you might live. I am diagnosing your sickness, and I am offering you the remedy. Our part is to believe in this diagnosis and look to him for the remedy. If the implications of the fall are disastrous, which they are, and we shouldn't minimize it, they're they're horrible. They're the worst you can think about. It's far-reaching. The implications are thorough, thoroughly destructive, thoroughly tragic. They're the cause and reason for everything that is bad and everything that doesn't go well in our life. And if that's true, then the grace of God is disastrous in the completely opposite way. And that's what Romans chapter 5 tells us. That there's not a single area of our lives that are unaffected by the fall. And therefore, there's not a single area of our life where God's grace cannot reach, cannot restore, cannot redeem, cannot unbreak. And sin, as sin once reigned in our lives through faith in Christ, grace reigns in our lives through the perfect, perf- perfect work of Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life. So we look at the same word that is used, that death reigns in, through Adam, but grace and righteousness reigns through Christ. In Christ, in faith in him, and looking to him, resting in his completed work, resting in the promise that he is that second Adam, that he is the great hero of our faith, that he is the hero of the Bible. He's the answer to all of our pain. That he will then reign, that his righteousness and grace will reign in our lives. There's something happening here. There's this beautiful reversal of the fall that Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do. And what you and I fail to do every day. In the way that we think, the things that we do, the way that we feel, the the dreams that we pursue, the ambitions we have, the motivations behind it all. Broken. And Christ comes to reverse it, to redeem it. Jesus' death on the cross shows us that Jesus is agreeing to be the recipient of that serpent's bite. He is agreeing to place himself willfully as the one who will go to battle and be bitten and then crush and defeat 
sin and death once and for all. Jesus is going to battle with Satan, with sin, with death, and he conquers it. He is going to battle with the one that we have, that we should be going to battle with, that we have failed, that we've actually been submitting to, that we've been loving, that we've been living for, that we've been pursuing. Jesus bears the full consequence of the fall so that we could live as if we never sinned. What a Savior. Look at what Jesus took on. Jesus was alienated, condemned, rejected, estranged, and killed. All of those words that describe, and all those conditions that describe what we deserve by being by not conforming to the legal standards and requirements that God has given us. We should be alienated, condemned, rejected, estranged, and dead. And in fact, our nature places us in that position. But Jesus became those things for us. And by coming to the earth, born as a man, Jesus is agreeing to take upon himself God's wrath and punishment aimed toward us. The sin of one man made us dead, but the righteousness of one man makes us alive. And by God's grace, now we have freedom for the first time to obey Him and have friendship with Him. Why do you obey God? Why do you pursue to obey God and think about obey God? Why do you want to obey God? When we see the beauty of what Jesus has done, the beautiful plan of God through all of Scripture in loving us this way, we love not because God is is useful to us and helpful to us, but our our hearts are now turned toward God with great affection. We pursue Him and obey Him because our hearts have have been made alive We've seen the beauty of his work in our place. And we say, what did I do to deserve that? And our hearts melt and and blood begins to flow to our hearts. And we feel a love for him, an affection for him, a beauty towards him. And our hearts are prone now to obey. Prone to hate sin and love Christ. Now we have this growing discomfort for sin. And when we turn from our sin and repentance and turn towards Christ in trusting Him, we grow increasingly with an affection to love Him and increasingly with a discomfort for sin, with that former way of life, with that life of rebellion against God and seeking our own salvation. We say, I never thought I could imagine hating these things, but I really hate them now. I don't want to live a life where God is not my center, my treasure, my savior. And our hearts are geared towards him, prone towards him by faith. Our hearts become disposed towards Christ. And he's transforming us. And his image, his likeness is being made and manifested in us. Things are being reversed. Our sin nature, once prone to only sin, now made alive in Christ, is, is prone to belief in obedience. The fall is devastating, but the grace of God is magnificent. Behold this. Hold on to this. Embrace this. 
Be honest with yourself with what, the, with what God's Word says about who you are apart from Christ. And see the remedy in Christ and His work. That His righteousness and faithfulness will outlast your character. It'll outlast your, your, your energy to obey. And it's a good thing. Because it's not based on our good works, not based on our righteousness. By one man's sin, we all have sinned. But by one man's righteousness, we have grace. Abounding grace that leads to eternal life. Let's live in this hope and let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.